Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me by Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies and tonight's guest. And we have a great topic for the discussion tonight, uh, something of great interest to anyone who's looked out at the ocean along the Mendocino coast any time in the last couple of months. We're going to talk about brown pelicans. Uh, Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest for us? Yes, Tim. Uh, we're quite fortunate to have Bart Selby. and He's talking to us tonight uh, from the San Francisco Peninsula, San Carlos. Bart has uh, been a very uh, passionate, enthusiastic, and, and long devoted to brown pelicans. And he does all kinds of things with them, banding, uh, various kinds of surveys, uh, working with conservation issues like fishing, uh, entangle, uh, fishing gear entanglement and also uh, the effects of DDT, which are part of the history of this uh, brown pelican population in California. So I'm going to let Bart explain a little bit of, about his background and the kind of ways he's been involved in marine conservation issues. So uh, welcome to our, our program, Bart. Thank you. So could you let our listeners know a little bit about your background? And uh, you've got a quite interesting one being uh, trained and working as an as an engineer in semiconductors and other things, biomedical devices, DNA sequencing. Uh, how did you how did you get interested in marine conservation issues, particularly in brown pelicans? Well, as a kid, I grew up with Jacques Cousteau uh, mm -hmm. in Ohio and moved out to California. And the the week after I graduated from college, wanting to be by the ocean, and uh, I've been in the Bay Area ever since. And it worked in a lot of diverse fields, um, semiconductors, aerospace, uh, 20 years in biotech. I was fortunate to work on some of the first, the first two generations of DNA sequencers and then uh, life science and medical devices. And in that time, once my uh, daughter grew up and fledged the nest, I started asking myself, what do I want to do uh, with the rest of my life? And... Um, I began to volunteer. Uh, I volunteered for the uh, Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and was a docent at um, on the SAC, on the advisory council, and was a docent at Elkhorn Slough and Cannery Row. And there I got introduced to pelicans. I had seen them before, but um, seeing them up close on a regular basis, um, I, got, I got very interested in them. And in 2010, I did a, a paddle. I'm a kayaker. I I did a paddle across Monterey Bay from Santa Cruz to uh, Point Pinos and kind of something I wanted to check off my bucket list. It's a 25 mile open ocean paddle. And then I began training for um, a paddle out to the Farallones. And in the process of that training, I started going to root places where pelicans roosted. And I'm a photographer and I always had a camera and I started seeing banded pelicans. And from there, I got introduced to the people doing the banding. And that's kind of my introduction. And that was about, that was in 2014. And then in uh, that 2015, it, I just did more and more and more. And then met some scientists and started uh, assisting on surveys. Well, that's great. Yeah, kayaking and having a pelican fly just a few feet over your head at Elkhorn Slough is, uh, I guess, one of the things that really got me in love with kayaking and pelicans. Yeah, what's interesting about, uh, especially at Elkhorn Slough, is every year we would have people come in and teach us stuff, and they would always tell us something different, or sometimes it would, they wouldn't all agree. 
and I started to see things that that they weren't seeing. Like uh, because pelicans are large birds, they they um, they have a high takeoff speed, and they have uh, they have a very high landing speed too. So they use the slew just like you would watch aircraft going into an airport. They always approach the same way. They always turn into the wind to land or take off. And these are things that nobody else was noticing. And I just started noticing more and more about pelicans and got more and more interested in them. Well, that's great because we've had an incredible pelican show this year. But I think before we get into the, you know why that might be and what's going on, the brown pelican has a really interesting, not only its life history, but its conservation history. Let's start with a little bit about its life history so that we can understand the bird and then, then we'll know the context for what happened to it in the 20th century. Sure. So there's 10 species of pelicans worldwide. Uh, there's two in the New World, and that's the white pelican and the brown pelican. And there's five subspecies of the brown pelican. In the U.S., there's an eastern brown pelican, and then there's the California brown pelican. The California brown pelican is about the same bird. It's a little larger. And our birds, the gular pouch, which is the pouch that hangs under their bill, turns red in, in mating season. And that's the two principal differences between the two. And I think ours plunge dives from a larger height. And if you contrast that with the white pelicans, the other species, that's really an inland species. And it's a, they uh, hunt together by herding fish and scooping them up. They don't plunge dive. So of all the pelicans in the world, only the brown plunge dives. Because they're in a family uh, that has a lot of plunge diving birds in it. Uh, yeah. Well, I, th I think all that's starting to change now with DNA. They're taking a look at how each, uh, how the birds are split up into families and species. Mm -hmm. And in the past, they had to do it rather crudely. And so I think all of that is in flux. But it, it, one thing that's really fascinating about brown pelicans or pelicans in general is in 2013, a fossil was found in France. And if you look at that fossil and, and you're sort of skilled in the art of pelicans and, and you look at, it's just the, the head, a couple of neck vertebrae and the bill, and it looks identical to uh, pelicans today. You can't tell them apart. Um, I yeah, 30 million years, 30 wow. million years. Yeah. And you think about, think about that in contrast to humans who are like 100,000 years old or maybe mm -hmm. a million, you know, depending upon how you want to cut it. And the pelicans have been the same for 30 million years. <laughs> a design that worked. Yeah. So what's their life history like? How, uh, how long do they live? And in particular, the California brown pelican has a, a kind of an annual cycle to it that's a little different, I think, than most of the migratory birds we see here. Yeah, the, um, Dan Anderson, who is kind of... Um, the god of pelican research, he's told me that the oldest one he's aware of is in its 40s. Wow. If you go to the bird banding lab, um, the, the record for California brown pelican is 22 years and some change. It depends on, so on where they set the bird's hatch date. And I've actually seen uh, the bird that I think will be the oldest in the state. And I, 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 the, I gave, gave you guys a picture of it. Um, and it's 22.75, depending upon where they set the hash date. Sometimes they set it on January 1st and sometimes on June 30th. That's all based on banding, right? Yes. This was a bird that was banded uh, in the Salton Sea uh, in, I think, 1999. There was a botulism outbreak there. 
and they banded some birds there. And I see the bird. It's a red, what, what I call a resident. It lives in a roost in Northern California. I'll see it 10 times a summer. I just saw it last week. So, and it, it now will be, I think, the oldest bird in the state at 22. But now with the blue bands um, and the red bands and the white bands, and we can talk more about those later, those records will fall because it's pretty hard to read a metal band. But the blue bands, you can read them from 100 yards away, especially with modern cameras. Mm -hmm. But so the life history is they live to be about... Um, Dan doesn't believe that there is a finite age that they die, like uh, the Laysan albatross that is 70. So if you have uh, 100% of your pelicans at year one, um, well, when, they're, when they fledge, 50% of those will be left. And then it's somewhere in the low teens every year after that. So if you do the attrition, you know, you can get out to 30 years and still be in almost double digit percentages. So, and that's, that's complicated for us in that the population had a severe necking in the 1950s and 60s because of DDT. In 1970, I think the population was down to 4,500 and they had like five chicks fledged in Southern California. Wow. And now we're probably, uh, Dan Anderson is doing a, a survey right now as we speak, uh, driving up the coast from Mexico Measuring the population is difficult, but it's probably somewhere between one and 200,000 birds. Wow. That's a good recovery. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. And they, so they breed, they don't breed here on the, on the North coast, right? They, uh, they migrate South and they, but they have a kind of an asynchronous breeding season. Well, you know, it's like looking for your keys when the light is good. They'll breed when they think they've got fish to feed their young. The whole cycle is about five months and we don't, I think it's the case with everything on the, in California is that because we don't have a good baseline prior to Europeans arriving here, um, you know, the first thing that Europeans did when they got here around 1800 is kill all the otters and then they killed all the seals and then they killed all the whales. And so we don't really know what the ecosystem should look like. And then we ruined the, the rivers, you know, with hydraulic mining in the 1850s. So we don't have a, an accurate baseline, but um, pelicans have um, bred as far north as um, recently they tried to nest at the mouth of the Columbia River on Sand Island. Um, last year, they tried to nest at um, in Santa Cruz County, actually in San Mateo County at Ananuevo. That mm. failed. But in the 1950s, they nested at um, Point Lobos. But historically, they've nested in Southern California. Um, and then anywhere from Southern California all the way down around the corner into the Gulf of California up to the mouth of the Colorado is typically where they're nesting now. What do you think the biggest determinant of whether they're going to nest or not? Is it uh, water temperature or is it food availability or... Well, Dan Anderson would be the absolute expert on that. Yeah, but sure, my understanding sure. is it's, um, I think they'll continue to try. Nature does that. But I think it's uh, food availability. A good example is uh, they seem to know when we're going to have a good herring year. And they'll stick around in the Bay Area um, through January, February, and March, then disappear. But when we're not going to have a good herring year, they don't stick around. They're gone. 
And somehow they know, maybe it's their catching herring offshore, somehow they know if we're going to have a good herring year before we do. So we see them here primarily in the summer. And by December, I know in our Christmas bird counts, um, mm -hmm. we'll get one or two some years and some years none. Uh, and then this year, they, uh, I think they really started to show up in May, early May, because I was out kayak fishing and saw hundreds and hundreds of them oh. streaming up from the from the south so they they seem to leave here in the fall and presumably that's to go to southern california and baja to breed yes but you're saying that sometimes they'll they'll shift that breeding cycle from year to year based on well some of them will stay um some of them will stay up here through march and and Often they have red pouches, which is a good indication that, you know, they're, it's a viability sign. It's that, Hey, breeding you know, adults. Yeah. I, I consider it the, uh, the genetic equivalent of a lipstick and a red cocktail dress um, <laughs> and, and both sexes wear it, you know, uh -huh. it's saying, Hey, you know, let, I, I'm available and, and, you know, let's do this in 2015 and 2016, they were here through, um, through March. But um, in 20, let's see, 2019, they left about the end of December. And the kind of the last place that they stayed is Elkhorn Slough. And they have this giant party. And because, you know, the, the, it's breeding season and they're all pretty randy. And it's amazing to watch. But last year, they left early. Last year, last year was a poor year for pelicans here in the Bay Area. And they left in mid-December and they just disappeared. And I see them, I'll see them in a wave. Uh, I'll see them in a wave in the spring and then uh, a wave in the fall going back. And then we have resident pelicans. I, I track about 600 banded birds and I have about 6,000 observations of those birds. It's a wonderful thing banding has done, especially the, the big bands, the, the, what we call the darviks. Um, it lets it's personalization of wildlife. You get to know individual birds. Mm -hmm. And so, so how do you, how do you put a band on them? Do you use a net to catch them? Well, so they get bands three ways. Um, they could get the most common banded pelicans that you'll see around here, are the blue bands. And those are applied by, um, by international bird rescue. And they have a facility in Fairfield and then one in San Pedro in LA and they will, if, if a pelican is injured, it comes into them. They'll, if they can save it, they'll nurse it back to health. And then as they release it, they'll put a, a blue band on it. And it's a letter and two numbers. Um, the bands that I've helped do are the red bands. And those are put on by a group in Mexico, Islas, and they kind of manage the islands um, south of uh, Tijuana uh, down about 150 or 200 miles around centered around Ensenada. And those, those bands are put on, uh, just before the birds can fly. Um, you don't ever go out to the nesting area when, um, when there's just small chicks because they nest concurrent with, uh, Western gulls. And when you approach the nesting area, they will fly away and the Westerns will take eggs or chicks. So we have to wait until the birds are big enough to defend themselves. So uh, they get put on just before they fledge. And the federal bands, just the plain metal ones, 
sometimes the rehabbers will put those on if there's something wrong with the leg and they don't want to put a, a Darvik on both legs. But most of the federal bands are older bands. Uh, Darvik's, the plastic band, started being um, used in 2010, 2009, in the winter of 2009 and 2010. So if you see a band, um, especially with a, an A or a C, that's a pretty old uh, Pelican. And how many Pelicans have been banded in that time period? I think IBR has banded about 1,600 off the top of my head. I think it's un definitely under 2,000. About 1,000 red bands have been applied. And then there's green bands uh, that from the refugio oil spill in 2015, and that was 42 birds. And then there's a, a, um, a rehabber in Oregon called Wildlife Center of the North Coast, and they use white bands. So altogether, we're one or two percent of the population. Yeah, if that. Yeah, yeah. So percent. the uh, birds that were banded after the refugio oil spill uh, were those ones that have, were treated for being oiled. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you you have a fairly good chance of figuring out whether the, their life, you know, their survival rate is is better than those that have weren't oiled. Isn't that right? That's correct. So there were 42, uh, two, I think 250 birds were, were um, killed in that. 42 were saved. 10 or 12 got bands with transmitters, backpack transmitters. And mm -hmm. those transmitters killed those birds within six months if mm -hmm. they didn't get out of them. Um, it's just tra a tragic thing that those were ever put on birds. And they got six control birds and put transmitters on them. And those birds all died too. But the 30 birds that didn't get transmitters and a couple that got out of their transmitters, those birds, most of them were adults. Those birds, some of those birds, a significant percentage are still alive. I saw one this morning, actually. Um, nice. Yeah. This year, I've seen eight out of those 30, and it's been six years since the spill. Um, so if you, it, it's, it brings up an interesting point about rehabilitating birds after oil spills. And initially, when it first started in, in 1970, uh, in the Bay Area, uh, International Bird Rescue, they were the first people to, there was a spill in the Bay, and uh, thousands of birds got killed, and they started to try and fix them. And it took about almost two, two decades to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. But now with this, we just did a study on the refugio. I had the honor of working on that study. We demonstrated that those birds are healthy. And we used the cooler pouch redness, compared that to unbanded birds to demonstrate that after the first year, they're, they're just as healthy as all the other birds. And they're still, six years later, we're still seeing a significant percentage of them. That was a, a huge issue uh, up in Alaska when I was working on the Exxon Valdez spill was, you know, the whole thing about birds have been brought into rehab center and cleaned. They've gone into uh, some sort of shock when they were captured and they were in bad shape to begin with and they cleaned them up. And the question was, are we actually doing any help, <laughs> giving these birds any help by bringing them in? And sometimes we had a people that were amateurs that would bring them in and the, the bird wasn't that oiled and uh, it yeah. had to undergo the whole trauma of being captured and, and uh, yeah. looked at in a cage. And then uh, we had some data, you know, I don't re recall all the data, but we had some data indicate that was survival rate wasn't that fantastic in some birds. Uh, I think yeah. it was the MERS that were. Uh, 
in, until this study was done, I, I had seen numbers in the single digit percentages, like below 5%. But yeah. this, this study, I mean, it was only, only uh, 40 birds, but we demonstrated, I think, um, that it, it does, that they can be saved. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, hopefully there's been some learning in the last 30 to 40 years. We can, can apply that to, to the birds down in Huntington Beach and Newport Beach that are being oiled right now. Yes. Before we get too far off of it, I, I want to make sure that we kind of finish the, the life history and understand the birds yes. so that we can get the, the story of the, you know, the late 20th century and what happened with them. Because it's really, I think, one of the great conservation stories of our lifetimes. Yeah. Um, it may be a, a good time to tell the DGT story. I think um, so. So uh, uh, pelicans will breed every year after, and some of the work that I'm doing now with the red-banded birds, just a slight little detour. So the red-banded birds are the first big group of pelicans where we know their hatch date within a week. So uh -huh. I'm tracking 200 of those. I have about 900 observations now. I've been tracking them since 2015. So with that, we're gonna be able to do a plumage progression study into adulthood and then um, a yearly plumage progression study to see how it changes over the year. Yeah, how so, long does it take them to get to breeding age? There's some argument about that, but some of them can breed at year two. It also depends upon when they were hatched, um, but they can breed at after two years, but after three years is more typical. And apparently in their, if they breed in their second year, they may only have one egg and it may be an unsuccessful. But they'll, they'll typically have two or three eggs and they'll fledge uh, uh, typically two birds from that. But again, it depends on um, it depends on the food supply. I, I've heard I heard uh, some people in Southern California saying that uh, maybe it was a year before last that they the adults will just abandon the colony if there's no food. And, you know, they had to abandon thousands of chicks because um, they couldn't feed them. They, they mm -hmm. will feed themselves first. Yeah, the, the first birds that, that I got introduced to when I got interested in pelicans, um, the first bird that I took a picture of, and this goes back to the personalization of wildlife, was a bird, uh, an IBR bird uh, called labeled C84. And uh, I took his picture and sent it in, and they sent me his, uh, the Dr. Durr, the veterinarian, sent me his history. And the history of this bird was in 2009, they had a uh, anchovy collapse and they had thousands of birds come into care and they were just starving to death. And their facility in Southern California is right on the ocean. And this bird actually flew over, saw all the happy birds eating and flew into the facility and walked <laughs> up to the front door. <laughs> yeah, his yeah. chart said self-admit. And I've yeah. seen two, two other birds that did the same thing. When there's a population crash, they're like, hey, you know, what's for lunch? But that wasn't what happened to him in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah, so that's a, that's a wonderful story that uh, I think should still resonate with people today. Um, in, the, in the 1940s, uh, especially during the Second World War, they had a big problem with uh, typhus and malaria as we moved into the tropics to fight the wars. And then in European cities, as refugees would stream into cities to get out of a war, more people would die from typhus than they would from bullets. A Swiss chemist was studying insecticides and found this, this compound 
and sent it to the U.S. Army. And there's a video about this, I think, on your on your website. The compound was called DDT, and the Army tested it and decided it was, you know, the best thing they'd ever used in terms of a pesticide. And the the it's an amazing video to watch. Uh, it walks you through all the steps, but it was persistent and it kills everything. And it would do it for months and months and months. So it was the the medical community looked at this on on par with uh, penicillin and the guy actually got a, the nobel prize in medicine in 1948 for it and there were people even back then who were saying not so fast I, I, we're worried about this but they were ignored and it went into production and it was produced uh, in a couple of facilities but the biggest production was in southern california at a place called montrose chemical and back then before the epa and before any regulations about this at all. They used to just dump their waste into the ocean. And it turns out that DDT is a horrible poison. Uh, it had a whole bunch of effects, but what it did to bird shells was it thinned the calcium it, of the shell so much that they would just collapse. And in 1970, uh, they had four chicks fledged from Southern California, from one island in Southern California where there should have been thousands. And that led to, eventually, uh, it led to DDT being banned in the U.S. And then manufacturing stopped in the late 70s, I believe. And um, and the bird gut was one of the first to go on the endangered species list. We were down to 4,500 pelicans in Southern California. Now, they were still breeding successfully around the corner in Mexico, but but uh, they were feeding up here and and getting sick because they move they'll move wherever the the food is uh in the summer which is why you have them up there now um but it, it's a, a nice success story that they've come back although there's still concerns about ddt in the environment and there's concerns that it's maybe causing um cancer in sea lions and i think there's now another study underway to see uh, ibr is going to work on this with other groups looking at um to see if, if DDT or its metabolites are being found and how at what levels in the blood. Once they we just stopped dumping it in the water, there's still DDT out there, and yet we saw a pretty dramatic recovery. Yeah, you know, I, I think that can be because the um, uh, anchovies and their the other fish that uh, pelicans eat are at the bottom of the food chain, so it's not bioaccumulating as long as they're not um, eating too much new stuff with uh, DDT in it. Um, but they came back, they have come back pretty quickly. You know, they were delisted in late 2009 or 2010. Taken off the endangered, yeah, um, they were one of the first species on it. And then they were taken off the endangered species list. The sad thing is uh, when you come off the endangered species list, you get the, um, the wildlife equivalent of a shopping cart, a pillow and directions to the next highway overcrossing. So there's there's really nobody doing very much uh, pelican research right now. That's a problem, and the most of the funding that does occur occurs after an oil spill when they have to pay for killing animals. Yeah, we I I like to say we have more people uh, poking through our underwear in airports than we do studying the ocean. <laughs> You're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, where every month we get together with a scientist and hear about some of the amazing things being discovered about the natural world and our place in it. This month it's the spectacular show of brown pelicans along the Mendocino coast, a bird that was on the endangered species list only about 12 years ago. 
Already this year, we've heard about everything from larval fish to dead whales, from deep sea research to forest fire ecology. This is all possible only because generous people, just like yourself, contribute money to keep KZYX operating. Bob and I love doing this show, and I hope you love listening to it, enough to make a donation and help keep us on the air. Yes, Jim, that's a remarkable aspect of living in Mendocino County that we can devote a full hour every week on public radio to talking about ecology and the environment. I urge you to join me in supporting this station. Go online to kzyx.org and click on the red Donate button. Or if you'd like, just drop a check in the mail to KZYX, Post Office Box 1, Battle of California, 95466. Yeah, and while you're doing that, let's get back to our interview with Bart Selby about the California brown pelican. One of the things that we would uh, like to cover is a little bit about flight mechanics and uh, roosting and so forth. I, I, I think that's an interesting area to, to touch upon. Being an engineer, have you done much study of, of how these birds uh, manage to fly the way they fly and, you know, things about body weight? issues and lift and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's one of the most fascinating things for me as, as an engineer understanding pelicans is that some people will say, oh, they're like airplanes. And I say, no, airplanes are like <laughs> pelicans. Um, only their, their, wings, uh, their wings are also their engines. So, um, but it also, it, it gives them some benefits, but um, it causes problems for pelicans too. So they have a stall speed, uh, if you're not familiar with aircraft, a stall speed is the speed at which uh, an airplane wing doesn't provide enough lift and the aircraft will fall out of the sky. So the, the larger a bird is, uh, typically the, um, the higher the stall speed. And with pelicans, I haven't found anything in the literature that says exactly what it is, but I think it's about eight miles an hour. Um, so they need to be going faster than eight miles an hour to take off. And that limits them. You, you'll never see, although there are a couple of places, Dan Anderson tells me that they will fly over land um, in Baja. Uh, and they used to go up to uh, the Salton Sea. They're not doing that anymore. They would and go up when, every once in a while, one will go up the Colorado River. But typically pelicans won't fly over land the same way a small airplane pilot won't fly over water. And that is because they, they have a very hard time taking off on land if, um, if there's no wind, because they need to run to eight miles an hour, and that's hard for them to do. Um, it also means they're very susceptible to predators. So they tend to roost together where they can watch out for each other, and they like to roost on the water. They will not roost on land. You'll, you'll almost never, if you see a pelican on land, there's something wrong with it. Um, other than like on a jetty or someplace, they can, they have some height where they can jump down and get some speed before they fly away. And so that's a big problem for them now in that they're roosting in harbors. Breakwaters are wonderful for them because they're on the water. Um, a, a breakwater as opposed to a jetty, a breakwater is freestanding. Um, so terrestrial predators can't get to them, but uh, they get disturbed by boats a lot at night. And when they were delisted, the state uh, committed to protecting them in, uh, in marinas and protecting roosts at night, and they're not doing that now. 
But um, so roosting is a is a, a big deal for them at night. They have to have someplace on the water, like you said, the rocks north of town. And when they find it, they will all use mm-hmm. it um, as long as they're not disturbed overnight. Yeah, the rocks for you know were added to the California Coastal National Monument. All the offshore rocks here are part of a national monument now, and so they have a, a protected status. Uh, which doesn't stop people disturbing them uh, up here. Our main problem, and it's probably the same where you are, is drones. Uh, people like to fly drones over the roosting rocks, and that can be a real problem. That isn't as big a problem. We, more, it's uh, commercial fishing boats with the big squid uh-huh. lights leaving the harbor, or just people getting too close to them. What's fascinating to me, and maybe a lot of people that are observing pelicans flying along the coast, is uh, their aerodynamics and they, they fly in groups and they seem to be kind of uh, drafting off each other or doing something because they'll you'll see a line of them and it'll, it'll come up over a wave then the next one will come and they and and it, it seems like some really interesting things that are going on there aerodynamically yeah so they're they're amazing flyers and there's been some scientific work done on this but Nothing in the recent past with the new, you know, the, the just explosion of uh, small sensors now. This, the work was done in the 70s with radar and some of it in, in wind tunnels and just analyzed using film. But um, when they fly in formation like that, they get about a 15% savings um, in energy. Wow, that's a lot. Some of, yeah, it is substantial. Yeah. Some of the other tricks that you'll see them do, um, when they fly uh, close to the water, that's called ground effect flying, and that's about 10 or 15% there, too, because their wings are pushing down on something hard as opposed to just pushing down on air. Yeah, it looks like often they, they catch a little wave of compressed air coming on the front face of a swell. Yep, and they're smart enough to be able to do that too. And they also know that um, even when the winds are strong up high, down low, uh, they will be significantly less. So coming into a roost or flying against the wind, they'll get right down on the water if they can. They like to fly about 45 degrees to the wind. That seems to be the best for them Hmm. for control. But in, in the San Francisco Bay area, we have a series of, of bluffs that are maybe a 200, 200 feet tall that run from, um, well, really all the way down from L.A. But you can see it most between Santa Cruz and San Francisco, and we'll get a, a predominant northwest wind. And so these birds are flying into the wind. And as you drive off Highway 1, if you look off to your left, you'll see them flying right next to the freeway, right over the bluff. And if you look very carefully, you'll notice they're not flapping their wings. Mm-hmm. And I call it bluff surfing. And so what they'll do is when that wind hits the base of the cliff, it's deflected up. So there's essentially a jet of air going straight up, but right at the cliff face. So they'll come up to that that jet of air and let it push them up. And then they'll glide down uh, towards the surface of the, of the cliff again. And then they'll pick back up and they'll just do that all the way. So they can fly into a 20 mile an hour wind at about 20, 25 miles an hour without flapping their wings. It is a remarkable thing to see, isn't it? Yeah, it's just yeah. magic. Yeah. We get that same yeah. effect that you're describing 
Yeah. It's like they're riding a roller coaster, watching them pop yes. up and then soar back down and pop up. And I can just stand there at the bluffs and watch that for hours. Yeah. You, there's a couple of spots um, just north of Half Moon Bay where you can stand out on the edge of the bluff and they'll come within 10 feet of you yeah. and just, you know, zip by all day long. Yeah. Same thing here off the Mendocino headlands. You can get really close. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if they're if they're plunge diving close enough to shore, but that's an amazing thing to watch too. You know, it's funny you mention that because I don't remember seeing them do it very often uh, here. I've seen it in Baja; they do it a lot, uh, and I've seen it a few times here over the years. But this year, we are seeing them plunge diving right outside the breakers uh, a lot in certain places. They're just really crashing into the into the water. Remarkable to watch. I've, I've seen them in, in a harbor, and one harbor. I survey um, about 100 times a year, 150 times a year. Uh, surveys between uh, Bodega Bay and uh, Point Lobos in Monterey County. And I have seen them uh, in this one particular harbor, plunge diving in the dark with no moon on an overcast night. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And what they do is, if it's calm, and sometimes anchovies will come into the harbor, and anchovies will come up to the surface to get oxygen, and they use the the reflecting lights, you know, of the the docks and the piers, uh, and they will fly kind of low, only ten or twenty feet above the water, and they will dive on the ripples when the fish come up to get. Uh, air ah, they can see the yeah, light. yeah and there's you know it's overcast and there's no moon and i've shot video of it it's not the best video because it's dark but <laughs> but you can see them diving in the dark it's in a, the first time i saw it i like to go out i do my surveys i like to be out to the to the roost before the sun comes up um and you know as i was leaving the beach i started hearing the the very distinctive sound of a, a plunge diving pelican and, as, and I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then I finally, after watching it for a day, I realized, no, they're, they're plunge diving in the dark. That's awesome. Are, yeah. Uh, do they hunt? Do you, is it even known? Do they, uh, do they, are they relying completely on sight or do they find bait fish by smell as well? Like some of the other seabirds do. I haven't seen anything in the literature that says uh, that they use uh, uh, smell, but it wouldn't surprise me, but you know, the, I don't, they're not tube noses, so they can't, you know, like the the um, albatrosses can. I, I'm not sure where they would, um, how they would do that. But I, I have been up in um, specialized light aircraft uh, off the, the coast looking at the bait balls, um, and they're they're really easy to spot, you know, from you know from 50 or 100 feet. Um, in the summer it's amazing what you can see when you're not when you're only going 40 or 50 miles an hour um so they're they're pretty easy to find and you know like the the, the whale watch when the whale watchers go out they want to know where the whales are they look for the pelicans mm -hmm. oh yeah. yeah 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 so they can they they seem to be able to find them and they they seem to know when they're going to be here uh in the winter and they seem to know like they have now like last year and this year we haven't had a lot of pelicans there were there were times in 2016 where we had 20,000 pelicans in some of the harbors i go to wow which would be wow. you know 10 or 20% of the of the population and yeah. now you know now it's one tenth that 
So they're clearly up visiting you guys. To my knowledge, nobody is trying to do a census of the population here. Uh, it's never been this dramatic, and it would be worth doing to try to count them on the rocks when they're roosting toward the end of the day. That's where most of them seem to congregate. And you could probably get a pretty good idea how many we've got. The Autobahn bird count does, I think you, you mentioned, I think yeah. that's this weekend too, right? Uh, I'm Global Big Day is, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. Uh, well, especially when you're looking for bands, you want to be out at first light. Um, and pelicans will they'll come and go. Um, they're typically going to stay put overnight. But I know Deborah Jacques, uh, a pelican biologist who's in Crescent City, she does try to keep an eye on Oregon and Northern California um, in terms of populations. But I, I think Dan Dan Anderson is doing a survey now, and I think he I think he's going to stop at Bodega, but he may be persuaded to go farther north if there's a lot of pelicans up there. Yeah, maybe we need to get in touch with them because there really are. They're, they're, uh, the, the numbers here are just far beyond anything uh, that anyone, I, as far as I know, anyone has seen in, in our lifetimes because there just simply weren't this many pelicans 40 years ago. And yes. Yeah, that's one of the one of the challenges. Yeah, he's going to be in the Bay Area next week. I'll I'll, I'll see him and mention yeah, it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, because I don't know if they're going to stick around, but right now the ocean here, and maybe it's our productivity is off the charts because of the all the wind we've had uh, lasting well into the summer. I reached out to the NOAA scientists, you know, that I'm associated with on the on the Monterey Bay SAC, and I, I got some a couple of graphs that I sent you, so you might want to put yeah. those on your website. But the the answer I get, and and from Dan Anderson too, who tracks this. Um, you know, he says, you want to know where there's pelicans, it's where there's anchovies and you want to know where there's anchovies, it's cold water. Um, and there's a giant blob of hot water farther off the coast. And what the scientists, I, the NOAA scientists who track, so that the fisheries guys track the bait fish and they track salmon, they track anything that is commercially fished. Um, you know, they, they track herring. I think that they stopped tracking herring inside the bay. Uh, two years ago, because the fishery essentially collapsed, it, mm-hmm. the herring populations were so low. But um, they, there's a pretty aggressive NOAA program to track uh, bait fish all, all along the coast. They they have ships that go up and down and do transects um, multiple times a summer, and they're seeing a, a narrow ribbon of cold water close to the shore, and then warm water farther offshore. And um, uh, unfortunately, it takes them a couple of months to do the data once they get it. But the preliminary results, I guess, for this year are a very productive, narrow band inshore with lots of anchovies. And the mix, anchovies and sardines are cyclical. And uh, right now, the uh, had been sardines doing very well. And now the anchovies are doing just fantastic. And it looks like the herring are coming back, too. Well, it's been a productive year of... Uh, it seems like it's been a productive year. Uh, we don't have a lot of scientific data, but uh, we had a problem with the with the kelp here. And, yes, uh, yeah, we're very aware of that. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, it looks like it's a pretty good year for them compared to what, at least what we've had since 2013. Uh, Both we'll species, or yeah, especially bull kelp, which was huh? bull kelp. Bull kelp the, and, really nearly disappeared. And bull kelp really got killed, right? Yeah, yeah. it almost disappeared yeah. entirely in 2019. And yeah. uh, then last year, 2020, we 
we saw a few patches that were, you know, a hopeful sign. But this year, uh, the kelp beds, I mean, they're still not what they were 10 years ago, but they are far be far larger and healthier than anything we've seen, I would say, in the last five to six years. And apparently there's a lot of urchins still around. So, uh, you know, take that and put that in your, hypo- your yeah. hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of head scratching about why the kelp was able to recover this year. Are the sea stars, are they coming back yet? Not the pink Napodia, the, the sunflower stars okay. that prey on urchins. Yeah. The last time we talked to somebody about them just a few months ago, uh, I think the word extirpation was mentioned <laughs> with regard to this wow. pink Napodia yeah. off California coast. They're seeing yeah. no recovery whatsoever. In, in large yeah. stretches of the coast, you can't find a single sunflower star. You used to be able to see them in the shallow uh, little channels and ponds and so forth uh, along the coast here, but uh, various kinds of starfish, particularly the bat star, Pateria. But, uh, well, I sure haven't seen many in the, the walks that I've done along the coast. A piaster? Is there one that we had a... a disaster, yeah, yeah or gracious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, those are we those have, big... have come back. We've got we've got ochre stars, and, and uh, I, think, I think they're bat stars in places, but the sunflower star, I, as I understand it, is the primary... That's the one that really preys on young purple urchins, and it, it just isn't isn't present. It's not a factor anymore. So it's strange that we have, you know, apparently healthy and expanding kelp beds again uh, in the presence yeah with of urchins. urchins. Yeah, yeah. It's and you have no otters either, right? No, There's no. no otters north of the gate. No, nope. not urchin-eating otters. I've got river otters. Yeah. The thing that I keep coming back to with the pelicans is uh, why here? Why so many of them just here? And what I'm gathering is that maybe our nearshore ecosystem is way more productive than either to the north or to the south because we're seeing this huge yeah. anchovy boom. Yeah, we're we're not seeing that here. Uh, you know, we've had the upwelling, um, you know, which t- typically off Point Reyes is what gets us uh-huh. brings us good nutrient-rich waters. And we ha- it was a good whale season, but uh, a couple years ago, we had whales coming into the harbor and, and at Pillar Point, you know, a 10-foot deep harbor, and not just poking around in the harbor, but feeding in the harbor. Huh. Hmm. Um, wow. And, you know, the, and it was not uncommon to see a whale chase anchovies against a beach just, just south, you know, on, just south of uh, Half Moon Bay. You know, they were everywhere, but um, we haven't had that um this year it's been and last year too the we had we you know we had pelicans we always have pelicans but we didn't have them in the numbers that we had them a couple of years before so they're clearly up visiting you yeah guys. yeah yeah they're the, where the action is and the action is definitely up here this year yes i think there may be a question about the that warm water blob in the band of cold water at least up here because tim told me that he went out you know, 38 miles offshore. Yeah, about that. A couple of weeks, 30, 35. And it was uh, 50, 56 degrees all the way out. And uh, hmm. so if there's warm water, it's wow. uh, further, further out. Yeah, yeah that, the warm blob, the, the image that you uh, sent to me, Bart, is it, it's a pretty big, it's almost like the blob, uh, although not as yeah. not nearly as warm, I think. But uh, it, the aerial extent is huge. But the nearest edge yeah. to us of warm water, from what I've been able to gather, is uh, somewhere around 100 miles offshore. 
Yeah. So that's yeah. quite a lot farther than the pelicans are going to be affected by there. They're primarily a nearshore species. Well, I was going to ask you, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, what are some of the other conservation issues um, beside oil spills and uh, past DET uh, contamination that, have, that affect pelicans? Um, that's a, a great question. So um, I see pelicans uh, almost on every survey that um, are oil contaminated. So small discharges either from large ships offshore just pumping out bilge water when nobody's looking and some shipwrecks too um a couple of notable ones around the gate put small quantities of oil in the water and i would imagine we probably lose a thousand birds a year to stuff like that so it gets on their feathers and 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 just like in a in an oil spill when they're completely overwhelmed pelicans don't carry soap you know the only cleaning they can do is mechanical and they spend a lot of their time cleaning their feathers. And it comes back to what I said about the transmitters killing the birds at the refugio uh, spill. If you break that, um, that barrier that they use, uh, the down in their outer feathers to keep them dry and warm, they're, you know, they're toast. So you know, we don't know what the percentage of, of loss is in, in terms of how much uh, oil contamination they can take. But I see a lot of contaminated birds, tar spotting, we call it with a cheap bunker fuel or some, some tarry fuel on their feathers. So that, that kills a lot of pelicans. And uh, the roost disruption kills a lot of pelicans. And these things were identified in the, uh, in the delisting document. But the biggest uh, killer of pelicans now is fishing gear, uh, recreational fishing gear, not commercial fishing gear. And um, I sent you a link to uh, a working group that I'm on on the um, – Monterey Bay SAC, where we're trying to figure out how we can solve this. And it's really going to come down to the state. And what happens is the pelicans, um, people are casting into pelicans. So we have to teach the fishermen how not to catch birds and then what to do when they catch the birds. Mm -hmm. And and some of it is um, just a mentality that, um, you know, the, the mentality I was taught as, as a kid growing up was that, animals were put here for us. And I think I, I, I'm hoping that we're going to move into an era where we're now saying they're put here with us and they have the same rights that we do. And so people don't think anything about killing birds. I, I talked to fishermen who were here in the 1970s when we got a lot of people in from um, Asia who had a, a, men, a mentality that the pelicans were competing with them for fish. And they would catch the pelicans and either cut their bills off or snap them. Um, mm. And if you look at old papers written in the at the turn of the 20th century, there was a lot of talk about they're not eating the same fish that we are eating. So um, there were efforts in the First World War on the East Coast to exterminate them, saying that they're taking fish that, that we needed to eat. So we have to get people on board to not kill pelicans either – uh, consciously or unconsciously, mm -hmm. uh, with fishing gear. So, you, so the problem with fishing gear is casting directly into an area where the pelicans are feeding, or yeah, yeah. Well, where the pelicans are present, and you know, it kind of, I find it amazing because you know, they're not darting about. You know, they're very methodical fires. But you know, in my surveys, I would see a bird after bird entangled in fishing gear, and we maybe get. Um, 10% of them can be captured and most of them just die on the spot. 
um, or drowned if they can't fly. Um, and I showed them to our fishing experts on the sack. And I said, you know, is this abandoned gear? And they said, no, that's people casting into birds. So it's an edge. The state needs to educate people. They educate hunters. You can't get a hunting license until you take a course that teaches you how to hunt safely. But you can you you don't even need a fishing license to fish if you fish from a pier. Mm-hmm. But um, the state needs to step up and teach people how not to catch pelicans and all seabirds, cormorants and gulls too. Yeah, exactly. Because some of them are so aggressive for food that you you have to actually be careful not to cast when they're uh, nearby. Gulls will come and try yes. to grab your bait in mid mid cast. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if pelicans do that or not, but I know that when we're when we're fishing and they're flying around, we're a little bit wary of that yeah, and trying you not have to, to cast be. when they're when they're in the air. Yeah. And you have to know what to do if if you catch one. So what do you do if you catch one? Well, the, the short answer is learn how not to catch them. But yeah. if you catch them, uh, I don't recommend people who don't understand how to handle animals pick them up. Uh, some birds like cormorants, uh, they're kind of bitey or they'll, they'll spike at you. Uh, no birds have teeth, so they can't bite you. But um, pelicans have a, a sharp tip at the end of their bill that they use to preen. And they can scratch you with their, uh, they have nails that'll, that'll cut flesh in their feet. Um, so the best thing to do is is cut the, the hook or, or cut the line, not as close to the hook as possible. You want the line to trail out of the, if the bird has swallowed it, trail out so um, the surgeon can follow that line back to the hook with an endoscope and not have to cut the bird open. But to collect the bird, cover its head, um, keep it warm, and get it to somebody who can take care of it. What would be the nearest uh, bird rescue facility? Well, there's different levels of uh, uh, rehab capability at the different facilities. In Northern California, uh, it's at Fairfield, Oil Wildlife Care and International Bird Rescue. Um, Now, they're the only people in this part of the state, um, they they cover through Sonoma County and I think some birds north of there, but um, they're the only facility that has the capability to uh, rehabilitate water birds. So they have pools and they have a flight aviary and, and, and such. Uh, and then I, I asked about Mendocino. I asked uh, Dr. Durr about Mendocino and she said it varies um, as you go farther north. Sometimes they'll get birds from that far north. But it takes a specialized facility to rehabilitate uh, water birds. This is an ongoing problem uh, with bird rehabilitation in general, uh, is access to any facility that can do it from from the Mendocino coast. It's a multi-hour drive to the nearest ones. And that's kind of a tall order, you know, just trying to find somebody that can do it and and keep the bird stable and alive for that period of time. Right. uh, It's a low probability effort, yeah. Right now, there's a, um, a very rare albatross, a short-tailed albatross that's been sighted all summer, um, I mm-hmm. think maybe first in Southern California and Monterey and San Francisco area, that um, is clearly entangled in line. Um, one of its wings is perfect, and the other wing is missing feathers every couple, um, every couple spots, and to the point where... I, 
the bird can fly, but probably not well enough. It comes back to the flight dynamics issue. Um, probably not efficiently enough to get up to cruising speed to get back to Japan where it needs to go to nest. So it's stuck here. And there's a big debate about pick it up or not pick it up. And um, they say, well, it can fly. And I say, well, flying and flying efficiently are two very different things. So it's missing basically a quarter of one wing. And in a bird, that's not just lift, it's propulsion too. Mm -hmm. So once you get, uh, the feathers get entangled, um, it gets to be a difficult thing. But in, in the case of this albatross, they have, they have a donor uh, albatross. So what International Bird Rescue can do, the surgeon there, Dr. Tur, is fantastic. They can, they can do what's called imping, where they'll replace the flight feathers. They'll get donored flight feathers <laughs> and glue them in. And they've done this to pelicans. Um, and then they can set the pelican on its way. They did have one bird that came to them uh, in Southern California where somebody had cut all the flight feathers and then just dumped it on a beach. So yeah. I think somebody wanted to have a pelican as a pet and then realized that wasn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. And they had to hold it for almost a year before it was able to fly again. Molt new feathers out, yeah. yeah. Well, Tim, I think we're coming towards the end of our... Uh... I think, here. yeah, I think we've uh, actually exceeded our allotted time and I'll have a little editing to do, but that's all right. We've, uh, there's obviously a lot to talk about with these amazing birds and uh, it's fun to talk with someone who shares my enthusiasm for it. Well, Bart, thank you for being on. It's been a really uh, great uh, to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, and our topic has been brown pelicans. If you want more information, we'll have some links to some of the things that Bart mentioned uh, on our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. That was a fun interview, Tim. Another in a long series of really fascinating discussions we've had on the show. I doubt there is another radio station in America where scientists get together, talk about scientific research the way we do every month. If you listen regularly, you're getting a terrific education in ecology, the science of how the natural world works. Even after a career in ecology spanning five decades, I'm still learning a lot each time we interviewed someone. I think that it has value and it's worth supporting, which is why I've been a member of KZYX for many years. I hope you will agree and make your contribution to KZYX right now so we can keep this going. Go online at kzyx.org and click on the donate button up in the top right hand corner. You'll have a chance if you want to leave a comment about the programming. So if you say something nice about the ecology hour, it'll make Bob and I really happy. Don't worry about making us happy though. Just make yourself happy by becoming a member of KZYX today if you aren't already. In any case, many thanks to all of you who have already donated. We'll be back with you next month. Stay safe. Have a good evening. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.